Konnichiwa. And hey y'all. I'm Leslie. And I'm Laurie. And welcome to Sumo, sumo Kaboom. Kaboom. Where we talk about all things sumo. And today we are celebrating Black History Month. Yes, for all of our listeners around the world, you should just know that in America, we spend the month of February trying to educate ourselves and hopefully this lasts all year long. But we have so much to learn. Like when you agree that like our past and our history has been really whitewashed in Absolutely. America because of our deepest, most horrible sin. We figured you guys would appreciate us shining a light on uh, some people of color who have made a big difference in the sumo world. That's right. All but right. First, news flash. Takayasu and his wife, Konomi Mori, announced that they had given birth to a beautiful, healthy baby girl on February 17th. So this is the crazy part. Takayasu hasn't been able to see his baby girl in person yet. What? He's, yeah, he's heard her on the phone and seen Why video. isn't he there? Well, because he's probably quarantining for the upcoming tournament. Oh, good Lord. Could you imagine? No, so, I cannot. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I hope soon he gets to hold his baby girl. Oh, my goodness. I know. Oh, that's the sad part. But the good news is, is they had a beautiful, healthy little girl. And Do you know her name? I don't. They keep that private. She she oh. announced that like she's new to mothering and she was nervous about the coronavirus and she's just um, keeping everything private, but letting everyone know that she gave birth to a healthy got baby it, girl. Got it. Here in America, they're like, I had a baby and her name is Apple. Thankfully, no one's been named Apple since Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> named her. Thankfully. Thankfully. Sorry to all of our Sorry, listeners who have listeners. children. <laughs> listeners are people who have also named their children Apple. I apologize. Apple's a good, fine name. You know what? To each his own. Yeah. Pomegranate, Apple. Pomegranate Colin sounds very strange, but hey. <laughs> Again, to each his own. All right. So if you guys have been watching or noticed, joint practice has begun. I always love this. Me too. Because this is a chance for us to see kind of all these guys interact, perhaps like they would on a tour, you know, with their joint practices. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just fun to just watch Takayasu or Mitakayumi watch Kakaru and Asano Yama or Meise or whatever, you know, watch them analyze and also just get creamed, you know, because Kakaru just completely demolished Mitakayumi like mm-hmm. the first day he was out, which is just good to see Kakaru mm-hmm. sparring. I was happy to see that. So Asano Yama's there, Takayasu, Mitakayumi, Ichinojo, Meise. I mean, it's a who's yeah, who. Yeah, they're all there. Except for Hakaho, which another piece of information here, news news about Hakaho, he had an interview where he actually talked about how he realized he had coronavirus. And he said that he was practicing. He intended to do about 20 bouts and he was just kind of out of breath after 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And he thought something was off. And then this is like a funny tidbit. He said Inho was complaining because Inho apparently does not like rice. <laughs> I don't really? know how you could just be a wrestler. Maybe it's just well, you eat so much, so rice, much of it. Yeah. It, but he was complaining about the smell of the rice and Hakaho couldn't smell it. He couldn't smell the, the rice. The stinky rice. Stinky rice. So, There's stinky rice and stinky rice. Right. So he was like, huh, I think something's off. So he went to get a test done yeah. and then obviously found out that he, he was positive. And then out of an abundance of caution, they put him in the hospital for nine days. 
isolated. Yeah. So he said he was reading books, but a little stir crazy. Yeah. But he also said his muscles, he felt atrophied because he was, you know. Doing nothing for nine days. Yeah. And so they were stiff and it seemed like he was a little worried about it, but I don't worry too much about Mm, Hakaho. No, I don't worry. I don't worry about him. And on the same subject of coronavirus, another stable, unnamed at this point, has had an outbreak of coronavirus. 14 wrestlers, Makushida or under, have been infected. So I'm sure it will come out soon. What stable it is, it's still scary, and I hope they all return to good health soon. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, the Tokitsukaze scandal, the Oyakata scandal. It is official. The Oyakata, the stable master, is out. I honestly think, though, that this guy, I mean... He really, really wanted out of the sumo association or he just was ready for something else because he really is a rule breaker. Well, give us a breakdown of exactly what he's done. Well, you should know that like 10 years ago, he got busted for like gambling for baseball, I believe, and match fixing some of that. Like he he had already like had some issues with kind of breaking the rules. So what he did was after December 25th, of course, all the wrestlers and Oyakata, they're all under quarantine, strict quarantine, because, you know, people don't want to get coronavirus. And when it, like I mentioned before, when it hits a stable, it goes through everybody. So this uh, stable master decided after December 25th that he was going to not play by those rules. The report said he went to play Mahjong. I think he went out five times to do that. He visited a sex shop once and a massage parlor twice. And that is all leading up to the January Basho. And Worse than anything, it seems like the guy just didn't seem remorseful at all. Shibitayama, who's the press representative, in his interview, he was, he did not mince words. He just was like, this guy, he's not remorseful. When asked if he would like to say anything, the guy was just like, um, I'm sorry, it was an inconvenience for you. So they accepted his retirement and he will now get a 30% reduction in his pay, his, I guess, his pension or retirement pay. And the new stable master will be taking over immediately, who is Magaki Oyakata, ex-wrestler Tosa Yutaka. This is Shodai's stable. A shakeup at Shodai's stable. Yes. And Ooh, that's fun to say. Yeah. Shake up at Shodai's stable. That's right. And Shibatayama, I mean, he just kind of gave him a very sharp warning. And he was like, you know, you if you go out there and you become a regular ordinary citizen, you're still going to be watched with a keen eye by the public. So it was kind of like still warning to him to say, like, you can retire, but we're going to still be watching you. We still expect you to what can play by the rules. What can he do? Well, he has they his can, pension. They could take all of his pension. Yeah. That's that's basically what they're saying yeah. is you're representing sumo for the rest of your life. Yeah. And if you don't turn it around, we're going to take your entire pension. Well, I don't know. They they could knock him 30%, but I may be just more of a message to the masses, but yeah. I don't know. So that's all I got. So let's move into our history section. Yeah. So as we mentioned before, February is Black History Month in America. It's a celebration of black people and the contributions they have made to society over the years that have often been forgotten. And there have been so many stories of incredible people of color throughout history doing amazing things, breaking ground in wondrous ways, science, fashion, music, all lost in history due to America's darkest sin. And you see so much of our history in school and growing up was whitewashed. And so who knows really what we were taught. So I come to tell you a story about a person of color that made a big difference in 
Japan. And with so much to learn, I just thought we would dig down and find out some history behind some of the very first wrestlers into the sumo world that weren't 100% Japanese. Sounds great. And by the way, forgive me for any errors. We know that we are maybe hardly the people to be doing black history of sumo, but we figured we had so much to learn and our listeners probably do too. So to help us celebrate people of color in the sumo world who were the firsts, I wanted to tell you a story about somebody who broke ground in sumo. Have you ever heard of the story of Yasuke? No. Okay. Yasuke. Yasuke. Yasuke arrived in Japan in the year 1579. And he came along with a Portuguese Jesuit priest named Alessandro Valignano. Okay, so in a nutshell, I'm going, you're looking at me really confused. Yeah, I'm like, wow, okay, no, 1579, I love it. How yeah. do you di- How did you find this info? Is well, this is a really fascinating story. It is somewhat legendary, and it's huge in manga, and it's just, it's... Is it a true story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a myth. No, no. It's a a very, very true story. This is a terribly summarized nutshell about Japan in the 16th century. But it had pretty much been isolated, very isolated up until that time. And they had been trading with China, exchanging mostly silk. Okay, but there were tensions between China. China said, "I we don't want to trade with you anymore. And so oddly enough, the Japanese kind of figured out this way to enlist the Portuguese to be middlemen and continue the trade. So with the Portuguese who came to trade with... That seems mildly out of the way. Right? But (laughs) it is what it is. So we want you to sail a far way that way, and then they'll come sailing back a far way. Well, this might make more sense to you. The Portuguese, wherever the traders went, the Portuguese priests went. So there were always going to be the Catholics who were out there trying to convert people. Okay. So the Portuguese ended up on the coast of Africa. They would sail over to Japan with goods from China, but they would also bring with them enslaved people. Okay. The Jesuit priests would also do the same. They would travel all over the world, trying to bring Catholicism to a new world, such as Japan, and they would set up shop there, and with them came enslaved people. So this priest named Alessandro Valignano brought along with him a 25-year-old man. He was an enslaved man, most likely, and his name was Yasufe. So we think his name was eventually changed to, changed to Yasuke, which is a Japanese riff on his most likely name from Mozambique. He could have been from Ethiopia, but at the time, the Portuguese were participating in the enslavement of the Mozambique people. He was most likely with this priest from a very young age. It sounds awful. It was, it was basically a slave of, of Slave his, for life. For life, yeah. So when Yasuke, though, arrived in Japan, Japan. He created quite a stir, though. People who were Japanese had never seen anybody who looked like Yasuke. So people started to come from 60 miles away to get a glimpse of this man because he was probably around 6'2", and he had beautiful dark black skin, and everyone wanted to see him. He was a foot taller than the average Japanese man, so he was really quite something people had never, ever seen. He was a big, tall, beautiful black man. Yes. And so Yasuke went along with Alessandro Valignano into Kyoto one day, and he created a huge, huge stir, and everyone wanted to see him. And he got the attention of a local warlord. Now, this was a Japanese warlord named Oda Nobunaga, and he wanted to meet this man. So... 
he did. He requested that he come to see him and he was so impressed by him. And at this point, Yasuke was already speaking Japanese and he appeared strong, stronger. It was said as stronger than 10 men. And so he invited him then to out of the service of the priest to come and be his personal bodyguard. So he had some sort of rapport with Yasuke at this point. There is this really old piece of artwork and it's anonymous and it's from an unknown artist from the year 1605. The title is Sumo Yurakuzu Byobu and it's a folding screen with artwork of a sumo match. It's a sumo watching scene which depicts a black sumo wrestler fighting with a Japanese sumo wrestler. Really? Yes, he's wearing a red mawashi and the wrestler is said to be in the presence of Lord Nobunaga who at the time was, like many nobleman, someone who enjoyed sumo and would host tournaments. So he would obviously have had sumo matches and enjoyed watching him. And perhaps this is why he was so impressed with his Yasuke and also mentioned that he was as strong as 10 men. Hmm. So that artwork currently resides at the Sakai Museum. So was he the very first African sumo wrestler. We don't know. Perhaps, though. And that's the history of sumo that I wanted to bring to light today. We talk a lot about foreign wrestlers today, but there was a first foreign wrestler, and it was most likely Yasuke. He broke ground for many wrestlers in the years to come, and he was most likely, I think, the first. So this is actually where the story takes off. At the time, Japan was not united. It had all these little fiefdoms. And like this little fiefdom where there's a warlord, there was one next door. But Lord Oda Nobunaga, he was a big player. And Ooh, he that's had... That's a mouthful. It is so hard to say. Lord Obo... Oda Nobunaga. Obo Nobu... No, Oda. Oda Nobu... <laughs> wow, I have to Oda say Nobunaga. that Oda Nobunaga. Well, just call it Nobunaga. Wow. But he was a big player in the battle over who would reign over all of Japan. And so Yasuke obviously now in his service as his bodyguard, proved himself and he would go out and battle with all these other warlords. Yeah. Yasuke was so important to him as far as a warrior, he made him a samurai. Oh. So he became a samurai. He was given land, a sum of money. He was given his official name at the time, which was Yasuke, and given a katana sword. So that is huge. Nobunaga, though, was eventually deceived by one of his own samurai, though. And he was tipped off to his location. He was deceived in what way? Well, he was at a temple. Yasuke was there with him, but he was lightly guarded by five or ten guys while his armies were out conquering other fiefdoms. That's when it was tipped off to his enemy by one of his insiders that he was there. And so with only a small amount of guys that could protect him, he obviously could not be protected. And forced him to surrender and then, of course, commit seppuku. And so during all of this, Yasuke managed to escape and fled to then serve Nobunaga's son, who eventually would also be found and killed. But at that point, then Yasuke was then captured by the enemy's armies. I think his name was Akechi, A-K-E-C-H-I, Akechi. He was then sent back to the priests and then That's where the story ends. We don't know if he returned to enslavement or if he went back to Mozambique. Mozambique. So that's kind of the heartbreaking 
part of it. And then doubly heartbreaking. This story is huge in the manga world. So there's a lot of different stories that have been very, very popular about this certain character from history. But Chadwick Boseman, this was the next movie that he was going to do on the docket. I was just thinking, how is there not a movie of this guy yet? Because this would make a fabulous screenplay. I think it was announced in 2019 that he would be portraying Yasuke in an upcoming movie and he would be producing it. So that made me even sadder because thinking of how good he would have been. He would have been. But I'm sure there's some other actor that will be just as fantastic. I hope so. Like the story of the first African samurai. I I think that this is a story that needs to be told. And yeah. um, So I was sad. But then at the same time, I was like, well, maybe somebody else will pick up the the reins and run with it. Yeah. Because I would love to see that movie. I would too. So the path for future wrestlers may have well been carved out by Yasuke, but the career, though, of a later wrestler, many, many years later, a wrestler named Henry Armstrong or Centoryu Miller is a wrestler from more modern times. He is half Japanese and half African. His middle name is Armstrong, which is a tip of the hat to Neil Armstrong because he was born on the day that Apollo 11 lifted off. But his Shikona is Centoryu, which means fighting war dragon. So Henry Centoryu Miller was a fierce wrestler who was born in 1969 in Tokyo to his Japanese mother and his African-American father. He grew up, though, in the States, in St. Louis, to be exact. And he was the first wrestler from mainland USA to ever reach the Makauchi division. First one ever. Yes. Yes. The first wrestler from mainland USA. Yeah. To reach the Makauchi. Because we always think of, like, who were the first Americans, but... Hawaiians. Yeah. It's not Hawaiians. So he wrestled with Tomozuno Stable, which is the stable of Kaisei, Kaisei Stable. Okay. And he began in the sumo world in 1988. Upon entering his first tournament, he actually won it. And after that, he spent time working his way up through the ranks, a majority of the time in Makushida. But he had a couple of big injuries in his career that sort of took the wind out of his sails. But, you know, we kind all know how that goes. When you're on the rise, you get injured and you fall down in the ranks. And But he would always keep coming back up and up again. And that happened a couple of times for Centurio. Yet he fought his way back up and he won a Makushita Championship too. He made his Jirio debut in 1994 and spent many years in the salaried ranks of Jirio. And he eventually made it to Makauchi in 2000. So his highest rank okay. was Makauchi 12. And wow. you know, Yeah. And that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. Also, it should be noted, like you've probably probably seen him before. He had this beautiful muscular physique. And I remember thinking, God, this guy is so super jacked. He's He was 5'9 and 300 pounds. And he was just all muscle. After he retired from sumo in 2004, he went into the world of MMA and kickboxing. Yeah. So I literally don't understand. You know how some people can play an instrument and they're like, yeah, I can play the oboe, but I can also play the clarinet. I can also play the saxophone. Like yeah. people who can just pick up another instrument and start playing it because yeah. they just get it. I sense that about this athlete in that he was like, yeah, I've done sumo for like 15 years. Till 2013, he fought doing kickboxing and MMA. Did you find out why he made the switch? I mean, it seems like the injuries would follow him into the world of MMA. Yeah, but if you have enough time to recover and heal, Hmm. then and maybe you use your body differently. I imagine you do. So 
he found success there and wow, competed for a long time. Yeah, till 2013. So I think that's just amazing. And perhaps maybe he's listening to us. And we would love to talk to you about your experience in Sumo um, World yes, and we beyond. Have, we have a million questions. I know. For someone who's been there. Yeah, I dug up as much information as I could. But, you know, since he lives here and probably could be rather reachable, you don't want to like stalk them too much. But I do hope that but we we're cross. Curious. Yeah, we're curious. I do hope we cross paths with him one day. Absolutely. And let him know that we thank him for his contribution to sumo, yeah. especially on our behalf and in, in the USA being the first <laughs> yeah. American um, mainland to be in um, Makauchi. That's quite impressive. Yeah, it is. And worth letting people know about. Yeah. And yeah, awesome. all I got. All right, kids. Sit back, grab a blanket, a maybe blanket. a snuggle partner. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of tiny Manny Yarbrough. <laughs> Whatever you do, boys and girls. Do not go clicking on links from articles talking about Manny Yarborough that say that they link to his website. I'm just going to tell you right here at the beginning, don't click on those <laughs> because now they are hubs for porn adult videos. Oh, so why don't, did they do that? I don't know. Some enterprising young lad said, oh, people will still click on this link. Just save yourself that trouble. <laughs> don't do that. I made that mistake a couple of times. So don't click on those. Tiny story begins in New Jersey, where he was born around the same time as Henry. He was known as Jersey's gentle giant because Tiny was always a very big boy. At age six, Tiny realized that he was really much bigger than all the rest of the kids. And he had to be very careful not to hurt kids of the same age whenever they played because oh. he was not Tiny. <laughs> His aunt fed him supersized meals, which helped him grow big and tall. So by age 12, he was 5'11". Wow. By age 12. Can, wow. Can you believe that? At age 14, Tiny weighed 320 pounds. Wow. Yes. He was an incredible athlete. In his teens, he ran five miles a day. He joined the wrestling team in high school, where the opposing team heavyweight wrestlers would often forfeit their games when they took one look at this big boy, and he did very well in wrestling. He went to college. He played college football at Morgan State University. He got out of college. He worked as a bouncer in New York City, what? which was a little too violent for the sensitive, tiny. Yeah, I mean, that's a town I would not want to be a bouncer in. No, me neither. Me neither. But he found this gym in New Jersey where he started to learn judo. And he was trained by a man named Yoshisada Yonazuka. And this is where our story takes a strange turn, boys and girls, because this man was from Japan. He attended Nihon University, and his dream was to teach at West Point Military Academy. I'm not sure he ever achieved that dream, but what he did do is coach three U.S. World Judo Championship teams, and he was also the founder former president and executive director of the U.S. Sumo Federation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Okay. And so this is in the late 80s, early 90s. There was this big push to internationalize sumo mm -hmm. back then. And so he worked really hard at this New Jersey gym to bring American athletes to Japan to train and to introduce them to sumo because it was still a weird brand new thing in America right. that people didn't understand. Right. So this was this was a fortuitous meeting for Tiny because 
This coach trained Tiny to a silver medal victory at the U.S. Nationals Tournament in judo. At, wow. in, in the in brown judo. belt level. So he was really good at judo. Big guy could still How move tall really is he? fast. He's like six eight he, or something yes. crazy. At the end of his life he was six eight. Wow. Yeah, so he was probably about that high then. I should say high. high. About that tall. High how off high, the ground. How high are you? I'm five seven. That's how high I am. That's how high I am. <laughs> oh, so this coach led him to amateur sumo and also later to mixed martial arts. So in the beginning, Manny said in interviews that the coach showed him a few of the rituals. He didn't think very much of sumo, but his coach helped him to get to Japan and train there, hmm. that's when he saw just how talented and how fast the sumo guys are. He fell in love with the culture and the rituals of the Japanese sport, like what happens to so many of us. This is a quote. He said, I didn't really practice sumo until I got to Japan. I went over with a closed mind. I thought it was a bunch of fat guys eating raw fish and bumping into each other. A little bit of judgment there. A little, a little bit. You could <laughs> sense a little judgment on his part. Yeah. But I'm glad he opened his mind. Yeah. The more I learned, the more I understood and respected the sport. And so he started to train uh -huh. and he quickly became a sumo star. 1992 at the Sumo World Champion Open Division, he won second place. In 93, third place. In 94, second place. In 95, he became the world amateur sumo champion, winning the championship in 1995. And I will say he did say that he looked at going professional, but he did not want to go through the hazing aspect that happens to sumo yeah. wrestlers in Japan. Yeah. He was very clear that he he just didn't want to go through that part of the culture, the sumo culture back then. And I know it's changed quite a bit, but yeah, some but of that... A lot of that is still around. Yeah. I mean, you have to do that for years. Yeah. The better you get, the more you get out of having yeah. to do that stuff. But and that's it doesn't matter. It doesn't of... matter your age. I mean, you got to right. start at the bottom and work your way up in professional sumo. And he wasn't willing. He didn't want to do that. Yeah. So that's why he went the amateur route and right. did very, very well. In 1996, he was still up there, fifth place. But this is really where Tiny started to earn his nickname because Tiny became a whopping 882 pounds in 1995, earning the title Guinness World Record Heaviest Living Athlete. So sumo wasn't really enough for Tiny. He went on to compete in mixed martial arts in the 1990s. He did have a memorable but very short career in the MMA. In 1996 and 97, he left the MMA and competed in professional wrestling for Catch Wrestling Association in Germany, which I'd never heard of, hmm. but basically started to travel the world. Tiny went on to become a famous worldwide sumo ambassador. Uh, Manny gave clinics and made appearances in Japan, India, Canada, France, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia. I mean, all over the U.S. He traveled all over the world, giving sumo clinics, talking with people about sumo and about martial arts, really. He also had quite a TV and film career. He was in a Bollywood film. What? Yeah. He made appearances on Heart to Heart, 
Remember oh, that? Oh, heart to heart. <laughs> Roseanne. Oh, my gosh. I still um, think of heart to heart. I know. It's, I, I had to laugh at that one. I didn't actually look up the role, but just the fact that he was on heart to heart is just What is so that heart to heart episode where they're like, we need a sumo wrestler? I, uh, I don't know. Because heart to heart was like a murder mystery. It was yeah, like a husband, a husband and wife. wife. They were always wearing furs and they had a convertible. Yeah. It was Robert, what's his name? And Stephanie, Stephanie Powers, it's right? See? Robert, Robert Wagner. <laughs> See? And Stephanie it's wonderful. Powers. I mean, it was before my time, but I do remember, like, it was in syndication back when no one had cable, and yeah. so it was like either Gilligan's Island or Hard Hard, to Hard. or Love Boat. So as like a as like a six year old, I watched a lot of Hard, Hard to Hard. Hard. So somewhere in there, you saw Tiny Manny Yarbrough, perhaps. Amazing. <laughs> he also appeared in the HBO drama Oz, which I've never. Oh. Have you watched that? No, I remember it. It's not my genre. Yeah. No, I mean, my genre mine. has to have like British people with accents and, and <laughs> he was period in... costumes or. I he was know. in this one. There's a German wrestling film called Sumo Bruno, which we have to find somewhere. Oh my gosh. He was in that. Is, it's not a comedy? I have no idea. I actually Sumo did not look it Bruno. up. Sumo Bruno. Which just sounds wonderful. He had uh, extensive talk show appearances. Man, I'm jealous of this guy's career. Right? I I mean, I've just done some commercials, but I'm I, not. This I... guy's done commercial. He was like in a Motorola commercial. He was on what? the Jon Stewart show, the Tonight Show, the David Letterman show. I mean, all over. In 2004, things started to change a little bit for Tiny. He started feeling tired all the time. He started to say in interviews that he was really having trouble sticking with training, that he was feeling old. Mm. Well, it was heart problems. Oh, no. In that's two, so sad. Yeah. In 2007, he was hospitalized for congestive heart failure. And um, after that stay in the hospital, things seemed to really improve for Tiny. He dropped his weight down to a modest 550 pounds mm -hmm. to improve his health. Mm -hmm. But he really had a hard time maintaining it. You just think about... You know, a life of being an athlete and working your heart that hard, but also yeah. that small heart doing all that work for that tall, big body really well, he's, can work a heart quite a bit. Well, and he's not alone in the sumo world. I think a lot of sumo wrestlers really have trouble making these kinds of dietary uh, changes, changes yeah. after sumo's done and you're not exercising the way right. you always were. Right. He's actually quoted as saying, it never stopped me from doing things. I loved competing and getting inside the ring is just the greatest feeling. I enjoy what I do so much. Basically, he talked a lot as he approached retirement about not only the difficulty of taking that much weight off, mm -hmm. but also how he thought he might lose career opportunities. Interesting. So he was really caught in a catch-22. He uh, died in 2015 of heart failure. You know, people were drawn to him because of his size, because of his personality. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very approachable. Because of his smile, he was a sumo ambassador with fans all over the world. At the end of his life, he was traveling as he could to talk about sumo and obesity. His girlfriend said after he passed that he will be missed by millions of fans all over the world, friends and family. He constantly demonstrated the need to help the obese, particularly children. Wow. So that... I mean, and, and at the same time, I mean... 
an incredible athlete, you know, can't be forgotten what he did for the sumo world as well as, you know, in many other facets. He was not only an athlete, he was an, an ambassador for sumo, introducing it to fans all over the world on television, but also very open with his struggles about weight toward the end. So he became a different kind of ambassador in the end. And mm-hmm. I think we have to honor both. Oh, absolutely. We have to honor all of that. Absolutely. I hope everyone has enjoyed learning a little bit about some some people in the sumo world that maybe don't get a lot of focus yeah. in the past and bring bringing to light their stories. They're very, very important stories in celebrating their lives. So that is our style of sumo here at Sumo Kaboom. Please tune in again for more info on the sport we love. See you later. Sayonara. Bye.